Steve, this is uh, Thursday, but it's going out Friday. Uh, We're pre-recording this one, so I'll uh, be early, but on time as this is released and say happy birthday. (laughs) I appreciate it, man. Getting, uh, like we talked about the other day, getting getting older, but don't feel like it, man. Still young and spry. Hopefully, I wonder how long that lasts, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well especially lately you said how you've been you know hiking and riding and you just feel like a physical specimen right now so it's a good thing man <laughs> turning 36 but feeling Uh-oh. like you're you know a good place yeah i was always like uh i remember you know in my late 20s early 30s when i was like really really rocking shape and uh i was always proud right like i'm a way better shape now than when i was 20 years old like i i could kick my 20 year old ass like hiking up a hill or something like that so yeah. that's a good thing to say better than the the opposite of um, you know, getting older and fatter and slower as you get to get up there. Right. For sure, man. Cool. Well, we have, uh, some listener questions today and then also some questions that came up, uh, from an email that went out earlier this week through EXO and, uh, an article that I had did on my rifle build, um, and some follow-up questions on that, which we'll get to. Um, but let's, let's tackle this pack question first. Um, this guy wrote in and says he just purchased a 4800 and previously he's had some K2 packs. He said one thing he has always noticed and wondered about is why XO bags are narrow at the bottom. Uh, he talked about his sleeping bag and he puts it in a stuff sack and it kind of barely fits in the bottom of the bag because it's narrow. So he's wondering what is the reasoning for that? Um, yeah, it's all about weight distribution. We talk all the time about... Um you know, having, having the, uh, when you're loading a pack, whether it's just the gear inside of it or, or putting meat in there, having the bulk of the weight up between your shoulder blades is, is the ideal scenario. Um, and so we naturally in the design of the pack do those things to keep the bulk of the weight up there. Right. Um, so yeah, in a perfect world, yeah, you've got this nice fluffy down sleeping bag you put in the bottom of that. But when you're day hunting, uh, if the bottom of the bag is just kind of as wide as it is in the middle of it, uh, everything's just going to want to naturally just slide all the way down to the bottom. Um, so it's just a little thing we do um, to kind of help, you know, prevent that from happening. Uh, same reason we, you know, have the how the bags attached to the bottom and we tell people not to loosen it up when you go to put meat on there, right? We're like trying to make it as easy as possible to keep that weight up high. We want to pull the bag off form that kind of v-shaped wedge and and force the meat to sit up higher and then also you know we've always um you know strove to have a very streamlined low profile pack um for you know for the bag size that 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 you need so when you're moving through the woods you don't have this thing that's like way wider than your shoulders and it's catching on brush and and things as, as you're out there hunting so we try to very much you know, when we're designing, look at every, every scenario as a, as a hunter and, uh, you know, having a big wide pack is, is just kind of annoying. Your, your, your arms don't swing freely. You're carrying your bow in your hand and, uh, you know, it's just kind of annoying. Um, so all these little things add up to, um, you know, add up to the pack, uh, performing out there in the field for you. And just, that's one example is having the bag tapered down at the bottom. Uh, obviously, if the guy's listening, I highly encourage you to ditch the stuff sack and just loosely throw your sleeping bag there in the bottom. Uh, it's going to fill that void up nicely. You're going to be able to pack items around it. It's going to work, work way, way, way better than putting it in a stuff sack, compressing the crap out of it, 
um, basically turn it into a little bowling ball that you're trying to stuff down there in the bottom of the pack. So mm-hmm. uh, give it a shot for me if whoever sent the question in, and uh, I bet you'll like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So, yeah, diving into the rifle uh, questions, I'm sure not everybody has seen the article, so I just want to mention that it's uh, out there uh, to look at. And if you check out the show notes, you can get this article. But essentially... You know, we did years ago uh, a podcast series on building a backcountry rifle and looked at everything from selecting a rifle itself to a cartridge and, and optic and bullet choice and shooting tips and all that. And there's actually links to all those episodes uh, in this recent article. So you can check that out if you haven't seen those episodes. But since that time, you know, it's been, I think, four years almost. I've essentially spent that time kind of starting from square one about what type of rifle do I want to use and quote unquote build, but by build, I don't mean build a custom rifle because my budget didn't allow that. So I basically wanted to start with a factory rifle uh, with my initial budget and then upgrade that over time. And then essentially that's what I've done over the past four years. And I kind of talked about the experience of doing so um, and what changes I made to it. So that's all in the article. So that's where some of these questions are um, stemming from. And then also just wanted to mention up front, uh, you know, one of the upgrades I did to the to the rifle was change the stock to an altitude stock from Mesa Precision, uh, which I've had for over a year now. And then we actually had John from Mesa Precision on the podcast. Uh, it was just this past fall, like late fall, early winter. I don't recall the number off the top of my head, but I had recently sent the rifle back to him to get a different barrel installed, which we've mentioned in passing. And while we were doing that, he just mentioned, he's like, hey, if you guys want to uh, like throw out a coupon or something for your audience, then you know we'd be happy to do that. So um, like kind of no strings attached. He just wanted to give you guys a chance that if you're interested in upgrading a stock, you can essentially save a hundred bucks right now um, with the coupon code MESA100. Again, we'll have um, that code and a link to those stocks in uh, the show notes or show description for this. Um, but basically for Tika actions, Remington 700, and then any 700 clone, which there's a bajillion 700 style actions. Um, that's what they make stocks for. And I think they can do custom inlets as well. Um, but what were you saying there, Steve? Um, I was going to, uh, ask what's the full price of a stock there. So what are you saving a hundred dollars off of? Yeah, I think they run, uh, right about six fifty. Um, okay. It's really close to that. So it brings it down to like five fifty. Yeah. Um, that's a nice 15% off or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so, awesome. Um, so yeah, we had actually one of the questions just to dive into it was what, how much weight did I save in changing the stock? So the factory rifle was a Tika T3X, um, and then changed over to this altitude stock. And the question was how much weight did you save? And honestly, it was pretty much a dead swap in terms of weight. Uh, but the advantages you get from, the stock is a lot more rigidity and just a lot better ergonomics overall. Um, so everything from, you know, rigidity in the forends is obviously really important as you're looking at shooting off a bipod and things like that. If you don't have a rigid stock, there's play in the forend where that bipod's attached, which could touch or inter- intersect with the barrel and change harmonics. There's all kinds of things that go into that. We actually talked about that in the podcast. But for me personally, the ergonomics of it, um, and just the overall feel and durability of it changed. When I was running a factory stock, I had to, for example, run a stock pack or a riser 
um, on the back just to kind of get proper position for my head with my scope. And I'm not even running that big of a scope, but I still needed that from a factory Tika. Um, and then the altitude has a raised comb. So it's just more, more comfortable to shoot both there as well as in the grip. So, um, again, weight savings pretty much even there. Um, but it's still, I think I said in the article, it's like the one upgrade that I did to that Tika that was changed it by far, like made the biggest difference in the rifle in the world. Um, you know, if you just had a factory Tika or like say a factory 700 or 700 style with a factory cheap stock, that's, that would be the first thing I'd look at upgrading. Um, it just, it makes a massive difference. Um, another question, Steven, you can talk to this as well. Uh, cause we both have shot, um, the scope that I have on this rifle was the VX five HD from Leopold. A guy was asking what reticle, um, is in that VX five HD and is it first or second focal plane? So the reticle is the windplex reticle, um, which is a very simple reticle. It has, um, as you might get from the name windplex, it has holds for wind in MOA, but it does not have any sort of holds for elevation or any BDC, like bullet drop compensator holds um, within it. So essentially vertically, you have a very clear picture. Um, and then with the VX5HD, they have an exposed turret where you can dial in um, elevation, but it's also a locking turret, which is kind of the best of both worlds. You know, if you have a exposed non-capped turret that's non-locking and you're hunting, that can get moved easily. Um, so this one's exposed, but at the same time locking, so it's not going to move on accident. And then as part of that, they also offer their CDS or their custom dial system where you can tell them what um, cartridge you're shooting specifically. And instead of having like an MOA or MRAD dial with those hash marks, you can basically get a custom dial uh, for your exact bullet in those conditions instead of saying, oh, I need to dial, you know, 4M away. Your custom dial basically just says, I need to dial to 300. Um, I'm running a standard dial now just because I'm testing a lot of different loads. But previously when I did like this past fall, I was shooting a 178 ELDX. Um, I did make a custom dial for that and tested it and it's actually, uh, it was spot on. So it's, it's a nice option for sure. Um, Steve, I'll let you hit, uh, anything you want to add on the reticle specifically, or just talk about from, uh, your personal preference and experience. Cause you've done both first and second focal plane. Um, and to answer the question directly, this VX five HD is a second focal plane. Um, but anything you want to add on that? Um, yeah, I, I like the, uh, I really like that scope. It's great clarity optics. Um, I do. I did really like the Winplex reticle. It just seemed it was a very um, simple system, right? And that I uh, had my uh, that Sig rangefinder range something. It just tells you the MOA to dial. You dial the MOA, and then when you're basically behind the scope, uh, you can just kind of all you you've basically got your elevation dialed, and now you're just worried about your windage, and you can just kind of I think through practice go, ah, eh, there's a five mile an hour wind. I'm going to hold you know one MOA over and then that windplex just gives you a uh, minute of angle ticks you know left and right for windage uh i remember specifically on our on the caribou hunt when we were waiting to get picked up we were shooting at like seven eight hundred yards or something like that and holding a bunch of windage and that was kind of fun um personally after using the scope a bunch last year um 
and this is just speaking to second focal plane, uh, I definitely went on a, a search to find a really good quality first focal plane scope that was, uh, you know, built well, but lightweight. And those two don't, uh, go two hand in hand. Uh, <laughs> the, the, all the first focal plane scopes are just going to be a lot heavier. That's one thing I, that VX five for the weight and the features, uh, it's pretty tough to beat, you know, it's like 19 ounces and, um, it was a really solid scope. Uh, I ended up putting a, a night force four to 14 first focal plane on my, on my PRC. And, um, I think we mentioned the other day, I still got to go get that thing sighted in, but that's got just a full on MOA reticle windage and elevation. What I like about that is it's kind of the same argument as like a single pin versus a multi-pin bow sight, right? Like the reality of on the ground hunting, um, you can basically, I, I was actually playing with my shooter app and I figured out that if I set my zero to 195 yards, um, it, and so that's basically 200 yards zero, right? But uh, my, let's see, two MOA is 300 yards, 400 yards is four MOA, uh, and then five was six. So it's like this very simple, and that lays out really well in the um, in the uh, scope, in the reticle, um, to where, where I could shoot out to 500 yards uh, without having to dial. Um, and, and I think there's just plenty of situations when you're out there hunting, you you know, especially under 400 yards, like you just got to be able to shoot quickly. Um, and I didn't like the whole process of ranging, uh, then dialing, then get into the scope, right? Like if you can just range and go right into the scope, you skip a whole step there. Um, I think once you start shooting, you know, probably really from 400 on out to whatever the heck you want to shoot, feel comfortable shooting, can shoot, uh, then, then yeah, obviously you need to dial and get that ultimate precision. But from a, a hunting perspective and, and just looking at reality most of those shots are going to be 200 to 400 yards uh, and just be able to pull the scope up and shoot to me is is very appealing so um yeah that's my current take on it but again that's just uh i'm not some uh uber experienced uh rifle guy here it's just my current um, current thoughts on the process right yeah for me um i have some first focal plane scopes i for hunting and for this rifle, I like second focal plane. And part of that goes back to, um, you know, low power. And obviously I'm spending some of my time in the woods in Missouri where shots are normally really close. And that was, again, the article talks about this, but I wanted this one rifle to be able to do everything from, you know, a whitetail hunt in Missouri to I've taken it to Alaska twice to, you know, a mule deer hunt in Idaho. I just was trying to cover the bases with one rifle. And if you're running low magnification on many first focal plane scopes and then pair that with the potential of a low light situation, uh, there's just not really good visibility in most first focal plane scopes on that. So there's all kinds of things to consider. Um, you know, as you're talking, Steve, a really good points about being able to shoot quickly and effectively within some sort of moderate range, like you said, maybe within 400, maybe that's not even looking at dialing or holdovers necessarily with like a first focal plane. Maybe you need to look at like a maximum point blank range zero. Um, so that might be an idea that's new to some guys and go Google that. We don't have time to talk about it today, but, um, (laughs) all that said to say, yeah, that's part of like the, the fun of all this is there's no one right answer. You're just going to make some choices um, on what you want and, and what you think works best for you. Um, let's see. So there was a question on 
one of the upgrades I did um, was changing the factory uh, bottom metal, and I use that term in quotations because it's all plastic on a Tika, but basically the trigger guard and the magazine, and I changed it to um, a bottom metal from Red Snake Tactical. Um, I did that for durability reasons, but also I had occasional occasional issues with the factory magazine accidentally uh, disengaging, um, which is obviously could be a big, big problem. Um, and so the, the Red Snake Tactical has a completely different mag release and then also allows you to use different magazines um, and AICS pattern magazines, which long story short, I don't want to lose people in the weeds, but um, essentially I can... Uh, you can take like your round and I'm this one happens to be a 30 out six and I can extend the overall length of the cartridge, uh, which could be helpful, especially with more modern bullet choices to not be limited by magazine length. So it was another kind of side benefit and just something to consider if you kind of regardless of what cartridge, but if you are going to reload or think you might be reloading, that might be something you look at is is a factory magazine going to limit your possibilities on overall length for the bullet that you may want to shoot? So again, just an option you might want to consider. Um, Steve, another one I want to hit with you. There's questions on what is the overall weight of my rifle all said and done. That is a, been a little bit of a moving target just because as I discussed in this article, I've made changes, all these changes over time. I didn't just like one day end up with the rifle I have today. I've hunted with it in different configurations as I've upgraded different pieces at different times. But my whole goal was always to be around eight-ish pounds fully equipped. Um, and that's honestly where it stayed for the most part. So I know that like when we were in um, when we were in Alaska for the caribou hunts, I remember being stuck in that shed and they had a scale and we all put our rifles on that. And I know I was like eight pounds four ounces at that point and that was with everything like that was with um a sling on that was with a magazine fully loaded that was like all said and done it was eight pounds four ounces um i've changed the bottom middle since then it's a little bit heavier with the newer magazine but in general i'd say depending on how you're weighing it meaning with rounds or without with a sling or without etc it's right in that eight to eight and a half pound um, ballpark fully equipped. I've, we've joked before Steve on the podcast. I think though, literally maybe the only time I've heard you say something was too light was you're talking about rifles. And so again, I'm just really curious over your experience. Um, you know, even over the past few years of like, you're always chasing what's the lightest weight option. What for your needs, I guess you've kind of seen there's some benefit to having some weight to a rifle and not just having the absolute lightest option possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have a direct, I've got two really nice rifles, a Creedmoor and the PRC. Um, both are insanely accurate guns. Uh, the, the PRC probably, you know, the, the Creedmoor, I just have to shoot in stock ammo and the PRC's custom stuff. Um, so the PRC, I think in the, in a perfect scenario, the best shooter in the world, the PRC is a more accurate gun. In real world, uh, the the two rifles are about a pound and a half different. Um, and how I set it up, they're about two pounds different. I shoot that Korean more better, hands down, um, to shoot tighter groups, more consistent groups. Um, and uh, so uh, the only thing I can attribute that to is the weight. I mean, every, they're basically near identical guns. Um, 
and uh yeah it was just, just my experience with it out there in the field last year with the prc because it's i think it's like five pounds oh 14 ounces without the scope on there um and then i've got i had that vx5 on there so it's it low sevens for the total weight um yeah and i just it just felt like it was too light just the the um you know you're hiking through the woods a little bit of adrenaline you know like i could recall just about every time i got behind the scope last year and settled on an animal it, it was far from uh oh the things at 700 yards just up and feeding and taking its time right it was like this thing's at 300 yards i just sprinted 50 yards to get to a shooting spot i'm out of breath uh i'm trying to settle in on the scope and get a shot off as quick as i can and um and that light rifle is just bouncing around on me so i think there's a lot um i, I could probably benefit a lot from shoot like having a shooting instructor for a weekend you know um everything's kind of self-taught or just little tips I've, I've picked up here and there uh, so i'm sure there's some technique things i was just talking to somebody might have been justin crossley the the guy who uh, writes for rock slide down at hunt expo and he was talking about with a light gun he'll just put his hand i think on top of the scope and just bear down kind of with as much pressure as he possibly can just to stabilize everything you know i think i've been trying to um kind of just let the gun float and be like as minimal as contact as possible and I think he mentioned the tip of like getting a bunch of pressure on that to kind of stabilize it. So, um, yeah, I'm sure there's some tips I could use and, and learn from and start shooting better. But I think the average, I'm probably the average guy out there shooting a rifle and that heavier gun is, is going to shoot more consistently. So something you got to balance of, you know, you don't want to be packing around a, a 12 pound rifle through the mountains. But at the same time, you build a super uber light one that's, you know, sub seven pounds. Uh, you may not shoot the thing worth a darn and then you got to put it on an animal you're going to miss. So um, definitely one of those scenarios where weight, um, you know, can affect you negatively. Cool. Um, just another final question that came up a few times uh, was what cartridge is my Tika in and then why? And it's a 30-06 or as I like to call it, the 30-old-6. Um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons that I'm shooting that. I did, when I rebarreled it, like I thought about changing um but honestly part of me likes shooting it because it's people think it's so old and out of date but it's still just like super effective especially again going back to a rifle that you want to use for um man just a wide variety of conditions and species and places i still think it's a a really good choice and part of me um you know there's all these modern fancy calibers and like i do have a creed more and what have you for other things, but I just kind of almost love shooting this hundred plus year old cartridge. And honestly, it's one thing a, a lot of guys don't realize on that cartridge specifically is, you know, it, because it was developed so long ago, um, and obviously things have changed, like with modern bullets, and then actually even um, Sammy specs that didn't really exist then. You can actually push it to much higher pressures than guys might realize and much better speeds than my guys might realize. And I'm not saying it's a speed demon by any means, but um, anyway, it can be very effective. It has a crazy wide variety of choices and availability, whether you're factory off the shelf, whether you're reloading. Um, it was honestly a factor of traveling with it and worse comes to worse ammunition doesn't make it to my destination like having a bunch of options um, to choose from when i get somewhere like you can go anywhere and find 30-06 um, it is 
you know, has enough power to hunt bigger game, uh, but at the same time isn't crazy on recoil. Like it doesn't bug me at all. I don't have a flinch. I can go out and shoot quite a few rounds through it, you know, without going, oh God, I shot 10 rounds and I feel like crap type thing. I can just shoot that thing all day. So, you know, it's personal choice. There's all kinds of things to it, but I almost kind of, yeah, just <laughs> almost like the the fact that it's old and people think it's completely irrelevant with new cartridges and I'll just keep rocking it, man. Yeah, it definitely seems like I'm seeing, especially with 270 and 6, um, some of the bullet manufacturers are, are going back and, and redesigning bullets to to get higher BCs and, and better efficiencies out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're seeing some cool stuff pop up that that uh, is really awesome. Yeah. yeah. 270 is still like, I, that's my nostalgic favorite. I'm uh, next gun I built, I build, I really would love to do a 270 again. And, um, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably uh, put one of those newer bolts in there. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I didn't build this to be a long range gun, especially specifically for hunting. Like I, I still want to, um, I'm not saying anything bad about long range hunting, but for me, I'm still trying to close the distance and, and hunt and not just sit back and go, let's see how far I can make this shot. Um, but at the same time, I do like to get on ring steel. I, mean, I can think of that one time, Steve, um, we got out, I guess it was when we were out building K3s before a caribou trip. And well, I can't remember what we shot. It was like five something on steel and I was just, and it was hammering it, you know? Um, so we can still get out there and stretch the legs and hit steel or say when we were in Alaska, we were shooting that stuff at 700 plus, like I was hitting that. I mean, there's actually, if you run the numbers, especially with modern bullets and again, some of the things I'm looking at right now in low development, being able to still push those at like 3000 feet a second. Like if you want to get nitty gritty on uh, recommended velocity and kinetic energy and reliable expansion with bullets, like there's even with an OT6, like there's some things you can do and have it be quote unquote effective at 600. And that's not to say that the shooter's effective then. And I'm not saying I'd shoot something then, but yeah, it's, 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 there's just a lot too when you look at it. So that's a whole whole different rabbit trail. We did a whole in-depth discussion on cartridge <laughs> selection back in part of that series. But to answer that question, that's what I'm shooting is the 30 old six. 30 um, old six. Let's move to another listener question on finding good hunting partners. Guys essentially asking, I'm newer to hunting. I'm struggling to find a hunting partner. It seems like all the, he said, quote unquote, veterans are secretive or have a group already and are reluctant to let an outsider in. Do you know of a forum, feeds, or websites addressing this? I have friends say that they would want to go last year, but they all flaked out at the last minute or were just not dedicated to fitness, finances, etc. I did to go out by myself for three days, but I felt reluctant to push it too hard or go beyond three days um, just because of the possibility of an injury, etc. I guess I'll be hunting alone again this fall, but it sure would be nice to go with someone who is like-minded and dedicated. So in that, I kind of see two two topics to hit, Steve. One is finding a hunting partner, and then the second one is hunting solo. Um, yeah, let's tackle kind of maybe finding a hunting partner first. This question comes up quite a bit, and there's not necessarily a super easy answer. All, all I could think about uh, as you were saying that was like, we need to create like match.com. I know. For when you said, are there any websites? Yeah. eHarmony. We need an app. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Um, man, that's a tough one. I don't know. I think, I think you just got to put yourself out there. Um, you got to go make some new friends, you know, I go to, uh, sportsman shows, just go to places, you know, find local events. Uh, I mean, it sounds funny. It's like you're trying to 
uh, meet some girl, but um, it's kind of the it's, yeah, it's kind of the reality of it. Yeah, um, you know, all, all of literally everybody I hunt with now, I didn't know ten years ago. You know, um, and but that was just simply like started a couple companies in the hunting industry and started meeting a bunch of great people, and you get to hang out a little bit, and you say, hey, let's uh, let's go hunting. Um, so yeah, I think you just you just got to put yourself out there. I guess join um. Join a local hunting club. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think the internet would be a tough place to do that. I, I'd want to do that more uh, locally, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean. As um, far as, yeah, jump on a forum and somebody be like, hey, let's go hunt together. Yeah, that'd be a little, um, who knows, but yeah. Yeah, the one thing I'd say on the internet is if there are state-specific resources, that could be really helpful just because you're obviously uh, – you're in a smaller, you're fishing in a smaller pond at that point of, um, if there's, you know, the Idaho hunters association or something like that, if there's some sort of like Facebook group, whatever that is state specific, that's maybe a good, um, place to start online. But what you said, I think is key of start local and try and make that in person with events. So whether that's, as you said, a sportsman show, if there's some sort of, you know, bow club or hunting club, um, a shooting range, like just any of that. It's kind of, as you said, Steve, it's almost like dating, like where, where am I going to, where am I, the type of girl that I want to find, where do they hang out? So it's that same kind of type of question, right? So like <laughs> the type of guy that I'm looking to go hunting with, where do they hang out <laughs> and go there and make some friends, man. Um, yeah, it is tough. And then you know, as it comes to determining like hunting partners and are they going to be a good hunting partner, man, that just, that does take time, you know, start with maybe like a smaller trip, um, with guys, you know, it made me think recently, Steve, we did the Exo Origins episode just a couple weeks ago and you got, you talked, you and Lenny about kind of how you guys got to know each other. Right. And it wasn't mm -hmm. go straight from meeting at a sportsman show to going on a five day backcountry hunt. Like you guys, you know, you went on a mountain bike ride, you did this, you did that, like basically just develop a friendship. Yeah. And then, you know, over time that, that can turn into, uh, taking trips and things like that. Um, yeah, you need to be, you do need to be super selective, make sure that it, you know, it's funny. I've just recently, I've heard like a couple stories of people like hunting with somebody new and they're like, I'll never do that again. You know, <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the person was just incredibly selfish. It wouldn't like be a part of the team. Um, you know, it's, um, so yeah, you just need to be, um, get to know the person beforehand. Cause the, uh, the last thing you want to be doing is stuck out there on a backpacking trip in the middle of Colorado with, uh, somebody you'd barely know and they turn out to be an asshole. Yeah. So this guy, let's say it's, you know, he's going into this fall and he doesn't find a mate, <laughs> uh, <laughs> before then. And he's hunting solo. You know, he brought up, he's gone out for three days by himself. He said he felt reluctant to push it too hard without support. And then he said, uh, in parentheses for packing or a possible injury. So there's kind of two things there is hunting solo, fill a tag. Oh crap. What do I do now? I have to pack this thing out solo. And then there's just this whole idea of hunting solo and the potential for, um, you know, injury. And we have done, um, a couple podcasts on hunting solo and kind of some things to think through. Um, I'd go check out number 135 and 176. And we, we actually went pretty in depth on both those topics, both in terms of, 
you know, one of those was, was with Will Myers, and he talked about packing out an elk solo and the strategies that he did for that. Um, and then we did t- hit on safety and everything as well. But just to kind of recap, Steve, uh, maybe some things to think through for this guy. It sounds like he's a newer hunter as well. So, um, you know, kind of that reluctancy to, to kind of go on a multi-day hunt solo. Um, yeah, that's tough. I mean, we've, like I said, we've talked about it plenty over the years of, um, you, you, it's just a process. It's not like my first hunt ever solo. I was going in for three, four nights and, and did one and left, you know, I was like, this sucks. I, mean, I'm, uh, <laughs> I don't like being back here by myself and it's kind of an acquired taste, you know, uh, of, of getting used to it and, and just being so alone. I think it helps a lot now. Uh, having an in reach where you can at least communicate, check in at home, you know. Um, one random thing before I forget is we, we just did a podcast and I had kind of forgotten about this. It's something I did uh, early on and uh, when I started hunting solo was have a um, reach out to a guide outfitter uh, that is somewhat in the area you want to hunt and see if they're willing to, to have you um, pay them to come pack out your elk. So that's what uh, that very first trip I ever did. I had a guide that um, you know, they had horses and, and all I had to do was get out and get to a phone and, and call them. And then, uh, they'd ride in and pick up the meat. So, you know, I think it's 400 bucks or something. And, uh, at least, at least gives you the option to, you know, if you are hunting elk, not be so afraid to get too far away from the trucker road, you know? Um, so that just to have a, just kind of an emergency backup plan. If you kill an elk in a bad spot that you're not completely on your own, probably, um, Another good option would be don't hunt, hunt elk, but hunt deer uh, for those first trips because that's a much, much more manageable animal for a solo pack out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's it's an acquired taste. I don't know what else to say. You just got to get got to get used to it. And, and I said I enjoy doing a couple a year, but also really, really enjoy the hunt uh, with my buddies and having laughs and just a good time. Yeah, it's a good point on. Um you know, basically hiring a packer. And if guys are wondering, well, how the heck do I do that? Uh, as you said, I'd start with like guides or outfitters who operate in the area. And most of those um, would be willing to entertain, you know, a packing only service. You're not hiring them as a guide. You're essentially just using um, their packing services. And to find that, I would just say in general, in most states, guides um, and outfitters are, you know, they're licensed and have the rights to operate in certain areas specifically. So in certain units or hunting zones, for example, and it's typically pretty easy to find, okay, I'm going to be hunting, you know, this unit in Colorado, for example, um, who are the guides and outfitters who, uh, have the license to operate in the area. And then that'll give you specifically the guys you want to then go call and see if they can offer, um, packing services for you. So that'd be a good way to, to start to look at that. Yeah. I'd imagine you're, fishing game officers and stuff like that would be good resources there. They're going to know the, the guys who are reputable and, and I'm sure they have encounters with them, you know, quite often. Mm-hmm. That'd be a good, great place to check out. Cool. Well, hopefully that was a, a good one for you guys. There's um, a lot of links we're going to hit in the show description, uh, both for that discount for the stock, uh, the rifle build article, the articles we mentioned on solo hunting and um, I'm not sure if we mentioned this as we were talking about, but there's another article on things to look for when choosing a hunting partner as well. Um, so yeah, hit the show description, check out some of those links as always. Let us know what questions you have. We'll be back next week with some more TSS episodes and we'll answer those for you. Just send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com.